fun to be together. I would, there's not any place I would rather be than here tonight. So thank you for uh, gathering together for the praise and glory of Jesus Christ. Take your Bibles and please turn with me to Judges chapter 21, the final chapter in the book of Judges. My intention was to preach through the book of Romans at the beginning of the new year, and I ended up in Judges. And for me, it has been life-changing. It has revealed the idolatrous tendencies of my own heart and how really prone I am to wander and go astray. It has really kind of fixed my attention on the cross. And uh, then I thought, hey, now's the time for Romans. And so I really have been spending lots of time in Romans. But, but then I, that's been changed. And as you know, um, the new series starting next Sunday morning is in the Gospel of John. And wow. I mean, I wish I could just go into it right now with you. Um, oh, I just wish I could. I wish I could just uncover what I have already learned in, in the book of John. Um, just phenomenal. So I am really, really looking forward to the refreshing life of Jesus Christ and his command, his call for you and I to follow him. Wholeheartedly follow him. Uh, who knows what that is? going to be like in each of our lives, but I, t- I will tell you this. Following Jesus is exhilarating. It is the very best life you can have. And it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Often he led the disciples into storms where the waves were swamping their little boat and they were actually going to sink. But that, that's how the Lord works. But we're not in John. So... I can't start preaching that. We're in Judges, and we're going to finish this off tonight. Let's pray. Father, as we look now at the last chapter of the book of Judges, um, our hearts are absolutely racked with pain over what's going on in the text. It is brutal. It is callous. It is sinful. It is depraved. It is malicious. It is violent. And these are your people. What grace you have. What grace you have to not only rescue them, but to rescue us. That you would love us so much that you would send your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us and bear our vile sin in your own body. And then for the Lord Jesus to be raised up with power and glory. What news? What good news? So thank you that Jesus is the perfect judge and rescuer. And I pray that tonight we would really uh, leave this book as changed men and women, boys and girls. That we we would not forget the lessons from the book of Judges. Thank you again for the teaching of the Word of God through the Holy Spirit's power of enlightenment, giving us understanding, opening our minds to spiritual truth. Be working in each of our lives to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ. Amen. Judges 21. I did not mention this morning, but this scene, well, so first of all, Judges 17 through 21, the last five chapters, are two little vignettes, two little short stories of what life was like in the days of the Judges. We know in the first episode, Judges 17 and 18, you know who the perpetrator was of idolatry and wickedness? It was Moses' grandson. 
Can you imagine Moses' grandson not only going astray himself, but leading the nation astray? It is, it is horrifying. Um, but now in the last three chapters, 19, 20, and 21, we have Aaron's grandson. Aaron's grandson is the high priest during these days, and they have to go to the Ark of the Tabernacle, and he gets involved. It seems like he's a good guy trying to hold together a remnant of believers. So just so you know, what we're talking about in the level of depravity is early on in the days of Judges. Like Joshua is hardly cold in the grave before they have already gone astray in their heart and behavior. All right, so we're talking, if this is the beginning of the periods of the judges, and the judges lasted 325 to 350 years, if this is what it was like at the beginning of the time period, what was it like at the end? We don't have specific stories, but it was wicked. But what can we learn from Judges 21? You're going to be introduced to two foolish oaths. So we're going to look at the last chapter around the picture of two foolish oaths that were made. But in order to catch you up to speed, let me, let me just review the story so you have it fixed in your mind. So there is a Levite, a man who should be holy unto God, who should be separated from sin and the wicked culture around him, and be serving the one true God and listening to the word of God alone. But we find out that this Levite who is married has a concubine. He has a woman as a sex object, she is not an actual wife, but she's more than a girlfriend. So he's kind of like the husband master of her, but she doesn't have the rights of a wife. And you know what happens. Well, first of all, the whole episode starts with one man's belief and behavior, meaning, hey, I'm not satisfied with one man, one woman for life. And, and he goes off and he has this girlfriend. And then she goes off and commits harlotry with another guy. And then she leaves her master or her husband. And she goes back to Bethlehem to her dad. And after four months, like the Levite hasn't done anything. She leaves. She's committed, he's committed adultery. She's committed adultery. And he's just like, hey, no big problem. Four months go by and he wants her back. And so he goes down there. And after many days of excessive hospitality, he finally says, father-in-law, I'm leaving and I'm going to take my girl with me. Uh, we don't know about his wife at the time, but his wife must be back home taking care of the house. But he leaves Bethlehem, and him and his girlfriend and servants and donkeys are going through Jerusalem on their way north. And it's late at night, and he's like, I don't want to stay in a pagan city. That's a wicked, sinful city. Let's go up. He ends up in an in a Israelite city named Gibeah. And in Gibeah, it's dark as he enters the village, and the whole town square is empty and he is wondering, how come nobody is showing hospitality? Where is everybody? And an old man comes out. Remember that? An old man from Ephraim comes out and says, Hey, what are you doing here? Don't stay out here at night. I mean, obviously, dangers are lurking. So he brings the Levite and the girlfriend into his house. Next thing you know, while they're settled down, maybe with a nice meal, there's banging at the door. And it's some wicked men from Gibeah who want and demand the old man, to give the Levite to them to abuse physically, to use sexually. So you're talking homosexual rape, everything that evening, horrifying. And the old man says, hey, don't take my visitor, but take my virgin daughter and his concubine and do what you want with them. What? Wait a minute. What dad would do that? We're talking Sodom and Gomorrah, but this is God's chosen people, Israel, acting like Sodom and Gomorrah. Of course, what happens is the Levite takes his concubine, pushes her out the door, 
and gives her alone to these wicked men of Gibeah, and they ravage her and abuse her all night long. Horrifying. That this would be taking place amongst God's people. But the Levite has no conscience. He's sound asleep in his feather bed while his girlfriend suffering like the worst torment you could actually have. And um, the next morning, he wants to go home. So he opens the door to get ready to go home. Not uh, one thought about the girlfriend. And he looks down, and there she is, stretched on the, the, the sidewalk with her fingers clutching the threshold. And he says to her, get up, we're going. Nice man. Like, no, hey, how are you doing? Let me help you. No, get up, let's get going. What are you doing? Well, she doesn't move. She's dead. So he picks her up, brings her home, and then he cuts her body up into 12 pieces and delivers a part of her body to all 12 tribes. Gross. Gruesome. Um, Enrages the whole nation, right? Then we saw in chapter 20 that Israel finally gets together as one army. They get 400,000 soldiers to go against Gibeah, And the Levite pours gas on the fire by lying. He doesn't tell the truth. He doesn't say it's his fault for pushing his concubine out the door. And he doesn't take the blame for anything. He simply says, these wicked men of Gibeah wanted to kill me. That's not true. And then they took my concubine. That's not true. You gave her. Um, He was cowardly. He didn't fight for his woman. Man, this this guy is just absolutely enraging. I I just can't stand him. He, he, He is not biblical at all. And after um, these 400,000 people go against Gibeah, remember there's three battles. The first battle, Israel loses. 11 tribes against one tribe, Benjamin, and they lose. Israel loses. They lose like 22,000 men. The very next day, they battle again, and now Israel loses 18,000 men in one battle, and Benjamin wins. Now they finally cry before the Lord, before the Ark of the Tabernacle, and they say, Lord, What should we do? Well, see, now finally they're asking the Lord. About time, right? And God says, wow, you offered sacrifices. You came to me. I will give you victory tomorrow over Benjamin. And they do. They win. The third battle, they win. The tribe of Benjamin loses. But listen, instead of taking care of a few wicked men in Gibeah, the 11 tribes go to every place in Benjamin and they kill every man, every woman, every grandma, every grandpa, every aunt and uncle, every mom and dad, every child in every single city in the region of Bethlehem. They are way more than an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. They are enraged with bitterness and they cannot even think straight. They are doing genocide. They are not getting justice. They are killing innocent people all over the place. Wow. Until there's only 600 men of Benjamin alive, and God had to put a stop on that because he needs Benjamin to stay. Benjamin has to be a tribe. So he had to stop them, and the fighting's over. But now the question is, what do you do with the 600 men? Because they need women, and there's no women of Benjamin. They're all dead. There's nobody left. There's 600 men of Benjamin. And now they got a problem. Um, So let's take a look and see what's going to happen here in Judges 21. Now the men of Israel had sworn an oath at Mitzpah. (laughs) See, they made a foolish oath. They they said something without thinking in in a covenant, kind of like Jephthah did. Here's what they said. None of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin as a wife. Well, great. Listen, 
if, if these 600 men don't get 600 women, then the tribe will not propagate. Benjamin will be gone entirely forever. And then God's plan really fails because God needed 12 tribes for Israel. Um, many things come, come with that, right? I mean, all of God's promises come with the nation Israel with its 12 sons, and now one tribe is going to be extinguished. They, don't, they, made a, they made a foolish oath that now they think somehow they have to live by, right? Can I say something about making a covenant? Be careful what you commit to. When you commit to one another, we ought to be as good as our word. If you shake hands with somebody and you say, I have a deal with you, that should be solid gold. Do you agree? We don't live in that day. Now you have to have document after document, signature after signature, and then probably sue somebody in order to make sure that they hold up their end of the bargain. But it shouldn't be that way. For a believer, your word should be good. Particularly... And the one covenant that you should make if God calls you to it, and it's the marriage covenant. So when God calls you to marriage and you make a marriage covenant, um, that is what you don't violate. All right? Be careful uh, making a rash vow like these people. So they made a vow. None of us Israelites are ever going to give a daughter of ours to be Benjamin's wife. To be anybody in Benjamin's wife. Okay, look at verse 2. Then the people came to the house of God and remained there before God until evening. They lifted up their voices. They wept bitterly. This is the other 11 tribes. And they said, O Lord God of Israel, why has this come to pass in Israel that today there should be one tribe missing in Israel? Like They're crying out to the Lord saying, Lord, why did this happen? Okay, why did it happen? Because the 11 tribes were insane they were, they were killing their own people. Who did it? They did it. Who are they blaming? They're blaming God. Hey, God, it is your fault. Why is one tribe going to be missing in Israel? What are you going to do about it? This is, this is your fault. Isn't it funny how when things go wrong in our life, we are so quick to blame God? When he is nothing but good and benevolent and kind, right? We often accuse him saying, Lord, where are you? Why, why aren't you doing? Hey, I prayed and I prayed. You haven't answered me. I wanted this. You didn't give it to me. Has he not given us his son, Jesus Christ? Has he not given us the most important person to him, his own son, for our sin? How dare we say, God, you're not good? But here, they're blaming God. God, why has this come to pass? We don't understand. Why did this happen? Because you went wild and you killed everybody in every city and village in Benjamin. And you left 600 alive. So verse 4, it was on the next morning that the people rose early, built an altar. They offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. The children of Israel said, verse 5, wait a minute. Who is there among all the tribes of Israel who did not come up with the assembly to the Lord? All right, there's a loophole. There's a loophole. When we made the agreement not to give our daughters to Benjamin, if you weren't there at the meeting then your daughters are okay. Make sense? If you weren't there when we physically made the oath about not giving daughters to Benjamin, then we could get your daughters because you weren't there. So then he goes on. He says this, verse, uh, the end of verse 5. For they had made a great oath concerning anyone who had not come up to the Lord at Mitzvah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. So any tribe or any part of a tribe that did not come to attack Gibeah, at Mitzpah, then they deserve to die. See, they made a second foolish oath. They deserve to die. 
So now they can't, not only can they not give their daughters to Benjamin, but if you did not show up at the covenant meeting to kill Benjamin or to kill Gibeah, then, um, then you, you should be killed yourself. And so as they're thinking about this, here's the loophole, verse 6. The children of Israel grieved for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel today. What shall we do for wives for those who remain, seeing we have sworn by the daughter? We will not give them our daughters as wives. Verse 8, they said... What? What one is there from the tribes of Israel who did not come to Mitzvah to the Lord? And in fact, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. Oh, man. Hey, if you're a member of Jabesh Gilead, if you live in the community, you have no idea what's about to come upon you. But you didn't show up at the covenant meeting, so you now are under the sentence of death. And uh, since you weren't at the meeting, they can take your girls. Do you see Do you see the craziness? One sin leads to another sin, leads to a deeper sin, leads to tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands dead. And now to get out of their mess, they're going to have to murder more people that are innocent. They're going to have to murder a whole city of Jabesh Gilead. So verse 10, So the congregation sent out their 12,000 of their most valiant men now, this is brother against brother, you guys. This is tribe against tribe. And they said, go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, including the women and children. Is this not horrifying? How can God's people act like this? So they go into Jabesh Gilead. Um, you, they, they shall utterly destroy every male and every woman who has known a man intimately. So they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man intimately, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is the land of Canaan. They found 400 girls, virgin girls, in Jabesh Gilead that they did not kill. Hey, but wait a minute. Do you see what they're doing? They made an oath to kill everybody that didn't show up. Why'd they leave the 400 alive? If they wanted to fulfill that oath perfectly, they should have killed everybody, even the 400 girls, but they saved the 400 to get out from another foolish vow that they made. They are totally contrary to God's word and God's God's standard. All right, continue. Verse 13, then the whole congregation sent word to the children of Benjamin. By the way, there's 600 men that need wives. They only have 400 wives. Hey, people, they need 200 more girls. And what they have to do now to get 200 more girls is horrifying. It just gets worse upon worse. So they announced peace at the Rock of Ramon with Benjamin, verse 14. So Benjamin came back at that time, and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh, Gilead. And yet they had not found enough for them. So the people grieved for Benjamin because the Lord had made a void in the tribes of Israel. Wait a minute. Now, there's no commentary on this, but don't blame the Lord. This is their mess that they made. Uh, the, the writer of the text, probably Samuel, he, he didn't give a commentary, but he simply said, this is what they were saying, this is how they grieved. Verse 16, the elders of the congregation said, what shall we do for wives for those who remain, since the women of Benjamin have been destroyed? They said, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin, and a tribe may not, that a tribe may not be destroyed from Israel. However, we cannot give them wives from our daughters, for the children of Israel have sworn an oath saying, cursed be the one who gives a wife to Benjamin. Then they said, so here they go, they're playing games with their vows again. Verse 19, they said, hey, in fact, there is a yearly feast of the Lord. All right, they're going to take one of God's holy feasts that God commanded, you get together and you celebrate me. 
you love me, you worship me seven times a year, and you're going to do it where the tabernacle is in Shiloh, these Israelites said, hey, wait a minute, there is a yearly feast of the Lord in Shiloh, get this, it's north of Bethel on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and the south of Lebanon. Lebanon. Um, I was talking to Jared about this the other night uh, as we were studying the Bible together. Hey, you guys. God commanded everybody to know where he dwelt on earth. The ark is where he dwelt, where God dwelt in the Shekinah glory. He said, three times a year, you come to Shiloh and meet me. Right? You do it twice in the spring, once in the fall. Everybody in the country should have known where Shiloh is. In this text right here, um, they have to even explain, where is Shiloh? People obviously are not obeying God's word at all. They're not going to Shiloh regularly to meet God. They have no interest in God. But there is a feast there. So verse 20, Therefore they instructed the children of Benjamin, saying, Hey, go lie in wait in the vineyards and watch. And when the daughters of Shiloh come out to perform their dances, then you come out from the vineyards, and every man catch a wife for himself from the daughters of Shiloh, and then go to the land of Benjamin. They are going to kidnap 200 girls from their parents. What? Yes, they've murdered Jabesh Gilead completely and stolen 400 of their girls. Now they are going to go and steal and kidnap 200 girls from moms and dads who are just celebrating the goodness of God. Well, verse 22, it shall come when their fathers or their brothers come to us to complain. Uh, Do you think they'd complain? You bet. You snatched my daughter from the feast of the Lord? You bet we're angry. And here's the response for them. They've already got a response. We will say to them, be kind to them for our sakes, because we did not take a wife for any of them in the war, for it is not as though you gave the women to them, so you are not guilty of your oath. (laughs) Because they didn't give their daughters, they were kidnapped, the parents are off the hook from violating a foolish oath they should never have made in the first place. Do Do you see how absolutely crazy this whole thing is? Do you know how many lives are ruined and how many families are shattered because of the disobedience of a Levite who's married and has a girlfriend who gets raped all night, dies, and he cuts her up? One man's belief and behavior influences a tribal genocide, murder, kidnapping. It just gets bad. Well, the children of Benjamin did so. Verse 23. They took enough wives for their number, 200 more from those who danced whom they caught. They went, returned to the inheritance. Listen to this. They rebuilt the cities. They dwelt in them. So the children of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And I'll tell you what, 200 moms and dads were breaking in their hearts because of their daughters being kidnapped. Verse 25, the last verse of the text. In those days, there was no king in Israel. You see, a godly king would not let that happen. A godly king would have stepped in and given justice, I hope. Uh, it says here, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I wrote down a quick list, all right? I wrote down a quick list of just in the last chapters, the last episode, the various sins of Israel. Listen to this. Adultery, inhospitality, homosexuality, cowardice. He gave the concubine instead of fighting for her. Rape. Murder, indifference, callousness. He said, get up, let's get going. She was a dead woman. Um, The Levite was lying. They made rash vows. They had ungodly priorities. There was vicious pride. There was disobedience to God's word. There was genocide of a whole tribe. There was kidnapping of girls. There was 
um, murder of Jabesh Gilead, bullying, uh, because they told the fathers, hey, don't complain that we kidnapped your wives. At least you didn't give them and break your oath. Um, so there was bullying, and um, that's the, the story of Israel. Gruesome, isn't it? It's gruesome. Uh, I'm going to share just a few things with you here. First of all, number one, as we, as we finish off this whole thought of judges. Here it is. Number one, if evil is going to be purged from Israel, it has got to start with personal responsibility. Do you agree? If, if Israel is going to get fixed, it's a heart issue, and people need at a personal level to change their mind about sin and place their trust in a coming Savior, right? Yes. If we want to purge Hermantown and the surrounding area from its wickedness and its idolatry, it's going to start with you and I consecrating our lives to the Lord. We place our faith in Jesus Christ, and then we commit to following him. We're not following the idols of the world. We're not following the culture. We're not following Hollywood. We're not following a political party. I mean, you may be part of a political party, but you're not following a political party. You're not following a political agenda. You are following the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is going to make a difference in your house, and it's going to make a difference in your neighborhood, and it's going to impact this church right here, it's going to impact this area, which then will have ramifications going out throughout our country. I really believe it. Um, so that's, that's where it starts. Um, take your Bibles, look at this with me, go back to Joshua chapter 24. Go back to a previous book, Joshua 24. Joshua warned the people that this was going to happen before the, before the judges started and before these two stories that I just told you in the last couple of weeks took place. Here's what Joshua said. Joshua 24, verse 14. Joshua 24, verse 14. He is pleading with the people because he, listen, Joshua knows the heart of the people and their heart is towards wickedness and idolatry. Just like you and I know the hearts of people around here, it is driven and prone to idolatry and self-worship. That is just the way it is. So here's what Joshua said, chapter 24, verse 14. He is 110 years old and he is going to die. These are his last words. He says, now therefore, to the whole nation, and as Ed said, many of these people that Joshua is speaking to are, are now either the parents or the grandparents of the people that we just talked about. So we're talking close relation. Verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord. Listen, reverence the Lord. Put him in a position where he is worthy of all of your devotion. So you reverence the Lord. You serve him in sincerity, singleness. You serve him only. You don't like serve him and a whole bunch of other pleasures. Your pleasure is Christ and that everything else is just an added blessing that he provides. But it's Christ. It's Jesus Christ. You serve him in sincerity and in truth. And where do we find truth? God's word. We're not, we're not doing what is right in our own eyes because, hey, if I want to live according to what is right in my own eyes, it is going to be very different than how God wants me to live. I'm going to live according to what God's word says because this is truth. My life has got to match up with this. My life doesn't need to match up with what I think is going to bring me joy, peace, and satisfaction. It's got to bring up what, what does God want out of me. So he says this, Put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river. Hey, everybody, he is talking to his own, his own nation, and they have gods in their own hearts and pockets. 
He says, put away the gods you have with you. You carry them with you. You bow down to them. You have them in your homes. Put them away. Don't hold on to them. All right, put the, because obviously they have them. Put, put away the gods, and if they're not physical stone items or wood items, they're in their heart. Put away the gods which your fathers served. And then it goes on, verse 15. Hey, if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, you know what? Some people actually think it is evil to serve the Lord. They think, hey, it's, it's evil that God says that I can't fulfill a certain lust. Oh, really? Yeah, it's evil that God says I can't do this or that I can't do that. Hmm. Well, I'm sorry, but God is God and we are not. Like, whatever he says is what needs to go. I mean, that's what has to happen. So even some of God's people think it's evil to serve God. So Joshua said, hey, if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. It's a choice. Are you going to serve the gods which your fathers served, that on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What a declaration. Regardless of what anybody else is going to do, I am going to serve the Lord, both me and my household. I'm going to lead my family in that manner. Like, where are the men and women in the homes that will do that today in the church? Who will say, you know what? Regardless of what the, ch- the culture offers, regardless of what people think, um, me and my family, we are going to make Jesus Christ the priority of our lives. However that looks, he's going to be our priority and we will serve him. Um, you know what the people said? Verse 16, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. <laughs> they said that. Oh, we won't forsake the Lord and serve other gods, but they've got their other gods with them. He, they go on in verse 19. Joshua said to the people, you cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Joshua said in verse 22, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Verse 23, he's arguing with them. Now, therefore, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart, turn your heart, lean towards the Lord God of Israel. And the people said, the Lord our God, we will serve. His voice we will obey. You know what? You guys, they said it with their lips, but they didn't mean it with their heart. Right? Do you agree with me? They were saying all the right words, and Joshua's even challenging them. You don't tell me you're going to serve the Lord because you've got gods you're still serving. Put those gods away, and then maybe I'll even think you're serious about it. Right? Where's the men, the woman, where's the, where's the individual that will say, you know what, the Lord is going to capture my full attention, my full, my full life, my full being? Well, it goes on and on, and, and then they set up a stone, and, they, and Joshua says, this stone is going to be a witness that you said you will serve the Lord. Now you better do it. And by the way, did they do it? No, they didn't do it, because we got the story of the judges, 350 painful years, Hey, we've got the story of the kings. You're talking hundreds of painful years. In the northern tribe of Israel, the northern ten tribes, they have, uh, what, 19 kings, and every single one is evil. Not one is good. They They don't get one good king that will lead them in the way of the Lord. In the southern kingdom, they have 20 kings, and only eight out of 20 are good. They are desperately, desperately needing a savior. 
Go with me over to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Verse 29. Deuteronomy 12, verse 29. Moses tells them, See, Joshua had told them, now Moses prior to that had told them, in Deuteronomy 12, verse 29, when the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, that's the time of the judges, and you displace them, that's the judges, and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them. You see, the gods of this world are a trap. They will, they will take your mind and your heart and your affections and turn you far from God. I've seen it in strong believers, in people that have sat here faithfully in the Word of God, and then their hearts get turned, and the next thing you know, their love for Christ pales comparison to the love of this world. Um, the Bible goes on and says this, Take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. God said, Don't do that. Do not worship the gods of the pagans. Don't inquire. Don't ask. Don't enjoy it. Don't, don't dabble with it. Separate yourself from it. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Verse 31. And so we finish with just a few things. Number one, as I said, if evil is going to be purged, even in this day, it begins with an individual. It begins with one man, one woman, spreads to other men and other women, other boys and girls, and pretty soon a holy people is a terror to the devil in the culture. Right? A holy church makes the devil afraid. And a holy church, a a pure church, will certainly make an impact in a dead and a crooked world. Number two, in this text, in Judges, it says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I challenge you, do what is right according to God's word. Look at God's word, find God's word, learn God's word, be mastered by God's word, and what it says for the church age Do it. Do it without any reservation. Do it with no holding back. Do you agree? If the Bible says abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul, do it. If the Bible says be sober-minded, be sober-minded. Whatever the Bible says for the New Testament church, we ought to do. So don't do what is right in your own eyes. Do what is right in uh, the eyes of the Lord. Number three. Israel was following their own heart rather than God. My question is, who do you follow? The Gospel of John, as we start it next week, like chapter after chapter, it is going to be, who are we following? You will hear me say the word follow every week for the next four or five months. Because my question is, who are you following? Who are we following? When, when the Gospel of John unveils the beauty of Jesus Christ, the love, the character, you can't help but say, I want to follow him. I am following him. I, that is who I am following. And then you will find as you are following Jesus, you are becoming like him. Because the disciples, when they followed Jesus day and night for three years, 
They became like him. They spoke like him. They acted like him. It was amazing. And I, and I, I want to see that transformation in my own life. So the question is, the days of the judges, they were following other gods, as we saw, but who are you following? So if you are not following God, you are worshiping something other than God. You are deciding what is right in your own eyes. Uh, things will, will never get better. They will just go in a spiral downward into sin and misery. And then you even lose sight of who God is. So let's commit to following Jesus. Right? We won't follow the pattern of judges, but we will follow Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this text. It is horrifying, the behavior of your people, but then you are a God of grace and a God of mercy, and you rescued the tribe of Benjamin from destruction. Even though it required more kidnapping and murder, you are the rescuer. You are the deliverer of your people. Thank you, Father, that we are not righteous on our own. There is none righteous, no, not one. Left to our own devices, unrestrained, we would be as evil and as corrupt as we find in the book of Judges, chapter 21. But we are thankful for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, for the restraining influence, the power of the Holy Spirit unto godliness and holiness. Thank you that Jesus Christ has rescued us not only from the penalty of sin when he died on the cross, but even the power of sin, which would want mastery over us, has been broken. And we finally have the, the opportunity to, pre- to present our bodies as instruments of righteousness, not as slaves of sin. And then, Father, use our lives and the testimony of the gospel from our lips to influence and impact people this week. This group of people gathered here tonight will have many, many conversations this week with many, many people. The influence in this room is enormous. And Father, I pray that we will influence the world for the glory of Jesus Christ and that he will be magnified and made great in our community. I pray for men and women to hear the gospel and to see Jesus in us and to respond by trusting Jesus, placing their faith in Jesus Christ alone. And we will give you the honor and glory as you continue to build the church and teach us to follow you. Work in our church, Father, and preserve and protect our church, we pray. And send Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And all God's people said, Amen. Wow, so we completed that book. Uh,